Hello everyone, it's July 16th, 2019. So Chandrayaan-2 will be heading to the moon and landing and roving. We're gonna discuss this amazing first for India and the InSight lander has got its heat probe stuck. How do you unstick it? JPL's working on it. We'll talk about it and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 219 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And Dennis is stuck in New York. Yeah. So I said last week that we all three would be here. And I, I guess I lied because it's not over. He has to actually now drive all the way back to Arizona. But yeah. he got stuck in New York because of a power outage, which that's just random. I actually did look it up and it affected quite a few people. Apparently, it was just due to a, a transformer. transformer. Yeah. But that like yeah like transformer fires are the the cause of like almost every power outage mm -hmm. like it's what caused the fire <laughs> that i'm interested because that actually tells you and your theory was pizza rat that was his theory oh that was his theory yeah <laughs> so what's your theory um, uh burger well, rat i wish it was something that interesting but i think it probably is just a transformer but what gets yeah. me is that in this case is it not that that caused like a power outage cascade because that's Probably. what gets that's what frustrates me is that i don't think that that has to happen i don't understand how power grids actually work but it all kind of comes down to you know how well yeah. engineered and regulated the thing is i think depending on the situation like sometimes that's that cascade is exactly what you want because it, it mm -hmm. keeps yeah. equipment yeah, it keeps from being damaged you know just kind of like power or uh, circuit breakers in your house but yeah like you said you know the the power grid is so complicated that <laughs> most people just can't understand it without a lot yeah. of work. It's like you're constantly spinning plates, or at least yeah. that, that's how I understand it. It's it, like it requires constant monitoring, and you're constantly having to change this. And that's what those people do all day is that yeah. they have to constantly turn dials, you know? Yeah. Because if not, something blows out. Yeah, it's, it's insane that like when you're generating electricity, except for now when we have batteries and, and we can kind of store energy a little bit, but like generally speaking... If power is produced at a power plant, it has to be used mm -hmm. that same instant, like at the speed of light. Yeah, it has to go somewhere. Yeah, it, it you have to use it. Um, so anyway, it, if anybody listening is interested uh, in learning more on YouTube, Practical Engineering, uh, Grady just like this month just did an episode on how does the power grid work. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. I think I saw that, actually. Yeah. Oh, so, I mean, like, his entire channel is amazing, but this in particular was a, a really good episode because it was like, it answered a lot of questions. Um, not mm. every question, but it answered a lot of questions. Yeah, it's just fascinating. But anyway, hopefully we'll have, hopefully we'll have him back next week. You will have him back next week. I'm out again. Yeah, um, you guys are just back and forth, huh? Yeah, well, I mean, this one was a little, it was definitely not planned as long as our uh, trip to go see Hamilton, but we're, yeah, we're going to go hang out with our friends in Oregon and uh, we need it. I think we, mm -hmm. we need it. Cool. Well, all right. So I guess in two shows time, we'll have a full crew here. Until then, I guess let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. So you're having to pick up for the clue that Dennis dropped. So the clue was welcome to the club, and I wasn't sure what that was about. I mean, it was a, it was a pretty good clue. So we have a handful of winners. Uh, ben Hallert, La Loving, Fell Knight, Valentin Frank, Anderson DeNova, and Chubby Turkosi. So all the, the usuals. And I'm going to quote Ben Hallert in a sec because uh, he, had, he had a clever little something to say. Um, so the 18th of July, 1980... It was the first successful launch of SLV, 
lofting Rohini RS-1 into orbit. So Welcome to the Club refers to India becoming the seventh country to put a satellite into orbit. It's very cool. Um, so Ben Hallert, when he guessed, said uh, that India joined a club that Jeff Bezos still hopes to join one day. <laughs> <laughs> I so like that. If we're going to make fun of anybody, it's going to be the super, super rich. Well, and the guy who, like, you know, does like to brag here and there about his ambitions, but still hasn't put anything into orbit. So, right. Uh, all right. So, SLV is the satellite launch vehicle. Um, and of course, India's got a very um, straightforward name of, of naming their launch vehicles. So SLV is four stages. They're all solid rockets. Um, it was described as spookily pointy, I, I think, by Valentin Frank. Um, I, I like that. Um, it, it looks very Soviet, you know, just uh, kind of an ironclad looking rocket. And SLV did four flights in total. So in August of 1979, which was before this flight, right, it crashed into the ocean due to a faulty valve. It actually, I mean, it flew for like 300 seconds. I mean, it was, it wasn't up to orbital speed, but it was getting there, um, you know, kind of towards the end of its, end of its run. And then, of course, in July 1980, they had a successful flight. In May 1981, they flew it again. And it went into orbit, but it was uh, it was too low of an orbit, so the satellite decayed after just eight days. And then uh, April 1983, they had another successful flight of SLV. So on each of these flights, they carried a version of the Rohini satellite. In this case, it was Rohini RS-1, um, which is basically just a data monitor to, to collect information on how well the flight went. So later revisions, um, both the one that flew in 1981 and the one that flew in 1983, uh, actually added cameras so they could do some Earth observation once they, you know, actually put the vehicle on orbit. But RS-1 was just uh, just for collecting data. So I, I mentioned India's straightforward uh, ascent vehicle nomenclature. So don't confuse SLV with PSLV, the Polar Satellite Launch Vehicle. Um, which is more of their their workhorse. What's really interesting, though, is I don't know if a lot of people have heard of ASLV, which was basically an SLV in like a Falcon Heavy configuration where you had two um, strap-on boosters on the side. So it, if you look at India's uh, launcher progression, it, it looks very Kerbal. You know, you start mm -hmm. with a small satellite launch vehicle, then you put some strap-ons and you can uh, get it up into a higher orbit and then you jump to a, a different architecture where you have, you know, larger diameters and uh, progress through different boosters. And it's, it's very pretty and very satisfying. It's good to look at. Um, and then finally, I wanted to mention that in the show notes will be some images from the Space India magazine. Um, so ISRO took them and then Space India published it. And these images were sent to me by One True Sheep on Twitter. Oh, hey, I'm sorry, One True Sheep. I forgot to mention you at the top of the segment. So you get your own little segment here. And uh, the One True Sheep gathered some nice looking photos. So those are the ones that I'm going to put in the show notes because they looked really nice. So thank you so much. All right, cool. Well, that was a nice little concise This Week in Space Flight history. So yeah, looking cool. on to next week, what do you got? <laughs> uh, this is an interesting <laughs> clue. <laughs> All right. Um, so next week in 1962, the clue is a list of 11 company names because I was thinking about, well, what if, you know, what if we were really cheeky and made the Apollo 11 landing as next week, this week in Space Flight history? And that seemed 
abundantly easy. So I figured I would do something different. Obviously, 1962, so it's just not the lunar landing. But I thought, what if we did something very, very, very difficult instead of something very, very, very easy? So next week in 1962, and those 11 companies are Lockheed, Boeing, Northrop, Lingtem Covat, uh, Grumman, Douglas, General Dynamics, Republic, Martin Marietta, North American and McDonnell. So these are very, very popular names. Like you should know every one of these probably at this point. I think we've talked about, maybe we haven't talked about Lingtem Kovat, but everybody else I'm pretty sure has been on the show at least once. And so all 11 of these put together next week in 1962 corresponds, as far as I'm aware, corresponds to exactly one thing. And I would love to hear if anybody can figure it out. I have no idea, but it seems like that they were all obviously involved in some kind of a like mission or something. And so these yeah. were all the contractors. I mean, that's yeah, it's, it's I mean, it's 1962 and they're American aerospace companies like that. That narrows it down pretty, pretty close. Yeah. So, yeah. So next week in 1962, something involving spaceflight happened. <laughs> I mean, and it could be anything since you have like everyone on that list. I, in fact, is there anyone missing? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, Bell's not on there. You mean Ball? Uh, oh, yeah, probably Ball. Yeah. Ball, Ball Aerospace? Yeah. All right, but that's next week in 1962. De- definitely <laughs> not something small, that's for sure. Yeah, and it's not going to the moon. That's the, the <laughs> key. Not in 1962, correct. Uh, I'll I'll happily give that clue away. <laughs> yeah. If anyone out there thinks they know what that's all about, just give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Yeah, good luck, everybody. So first up in the news, Chandrayaan 2. So let's talk about what's coming up in, well, for us, as we record just a couple hours, which is the yeah. launch of Chandrayaan 2. And, well, hopefully. Yeah. So this is an interesting mission because, uh, you know, India is going to the moon. Yeah. And, and they've, they've been to the moon before. They've been in orbit of the moon. So Chandrayaan mm-hmm. 1 flew at the end of 2008. And it was supposed to do like a two-year mission and, and uh, not failed. But the mission ended before the full uh, elapsed time. That was planned. Um, And then I I saw a tweet. I I believe it was from Chris Hadfield this morning. He had a nice little snippet here. So there have been 38 global attempted lunar lander missions, 38 of them. And so far, humanity's had a 52% success rate at landing on the moon. And granted, that includes a lot of early attempts. You know, the the Luna missions, just we slammed a lot of iron and aluminum into the moon. But yeah, 52% success rate. So... um, I think India is going to do it. I think I think they're going to be just fine. So Chandrayaan two is going to be flying on a GSLV Mark three, which is their largest launcher, and it's very pretty. And GSLV is going to put it into a high elliptical orbit initially of 170 kilometers by 40,400 kilometers, and then uh, it'll do a series of periapsis burns to to raise its orbit, and that'll get it up to lunar altitude and it'll be able to do a, a capture and then it'll slowly burn down into its orbit around the moon and uh, what they're aiming to do is go into a hundred kilometer circular lunar orbit while they're there they're going to do um, some photography of the moon so Chandrayaan 1 did uh, three-dimensional mapping of the moon and I should have looked at I believe that Chandrayaan 2 is going to do um, some follow-on imaging studies but the really exciting thing is on the 6th of September is is the planned 
landing of Vikram Pragyan, and they're going to be landing near the South Pole. So Vikram is the lander, Pragyan is the little rover. They both have a planned 14-day mission. They're going to try to revive them after the first lunar night, but of course that's always a difficult proposition, especially if you're landing near the poles. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll see how that goes, but Best of luck to India. Yeah, so the Orbiter payload does have a terrain mapping camera, so I'm guessing that they're going to do some more of that. You know, I hope it all works out well, um, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, it seems pretty ambitious. Like, this is a fairly robust lander, I guess is kind of what I'm trying to say. Yeah, oh yeah, no, the the whole thing is like seven or eight feet tall. Like, it, it's mm -hmm. a chunky yeah. uh, bit of hardware. The Orbiter alone is about 2,300 kilograms or about 5,000 pounds. Uh, well, that's the wet mass. Uh, dry, it's about 1,500 pounds. And then the lander, wet, 1,400. And then the, the lander dry mass, 1,300 pounds. So, I mean, that's that's pretty big. That's In fact, how heavy was Curiosity when it landed? I mean, it was, that was about a ton, right? Uh, dry mass for the rover only was, uh, yep, just under a ton, 1,982 pounds. Just the rover, so not the sky crane. Yep. Oh, and how long is that transit? Did we say that? So a series of periapsis burns and then so they'll do a burn about every other orbit um and it should encounter the moon in august yeah so it should be in orbit around the moon by early august and we'll talk about it more then let's uh let's move on to another lander and that's insight this one is already <laughs> on mars <laughs> but it's having a little bit of a problem with its heat probe um i don't yeah. have we talked about this before because um i don't know if we have we've yeah we've i think i think we have yeah. Okay. Because we've we've talked a lot about the seismometer, but I mean the heat probe specifically. I don't know if we've mentioned that. The little mole. Yeah, I'm pr I'm pretty sure we mentioned it in short and sweet. But uh, yeah, the mole has become stuck, and this has been the case since February when they mm -hmm. you know initially deployed it. I guess first of all, just to talk about the mole itself, like how that works, it's fascinating to me because I, you know, I'm thinking it through, and it really amazes me that something like this could actually work. And I'm wondering if there are things like this on Earth that we use. I don't know because there's probably much more efficient means of like you know. Like you could just use a drill, but this is a really neat little device that kind of like a mole, it just kind of like, you know, will bore into the surface, but it doesn't have any external moving parts, right? It just pushes itself down, I guess, just, well, how would you describe it? I mean, it's got, it's got a mass inside of it that slams up and down. Yeah. Right. It, it actually looks very similar to an impact driver like the power tool, like an impact wrench, where there's a rotating bit that lifts a, a weight up and then it slams down. So we definitely use things like this little mole, um, like a jackhammer. It's a, mm -hmm. you know, that's exactly what it is. It's just a, a jackhammer that's allowed to travel below the surface of the... But a jackhammer has like a moving shaft that will go up and down and then you have the part that you hold on to that oh yeah i see what you steady. mean yeah this is like a self-propelled jackhammer that doesn't have any external moving parts where where, where everything is inside the hammer part it's kind of like if you put a casing around the actual hammer of the jackhammer that's not a good analogy <laughs> but yeah it uses momentum to kind of you know gain some speed and then it slams into the tip of the probe which will push it forward and then i guess when the hammer accelerates does that not have to do so at a very specific speed because if not then you could get some slippage because wouldn't that cause 
the probe casing to move backwards in the sand? Because like, if you think about the physics of how it works, it, I mean, I can kind of intuit the process and I kind of just imagine myself in like, you know, a big box and I have to slam the box forward. You know what I mean? <laughs> but that means that I can't start running too fast because like, if I accelerate too quickly, the box will slip from underneath me, you know? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's really about accelerating slowly enough that the gravity of Mars and the friction from the sand around you doesn't make you jump up before you slam right. downwards. Yeah. And so something like that they can bore into regolith. That's quite a remarkable feat of engineering, if you ask me. I mean, just that one little thing, because how do you design something that they can penetrate? And this is supposed to go, what, 16 feet down? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, to quite a depth. And, uh, you know, it, it does it over a very long period of time because it's little taps on the hammer over and over and over. What's interesting is that uh, this probe, before it got stuck, which we'll talk about in a second, it, it actually made it about 12 inches in about a half an hour. Yeah, so that's good. Yeah, that's a lot faster than I thought. But yeah, it, it had become stuck. And uh, folks back at JPL were trying to figure out exactly what went wrong. And they had some theories because, yeah, speaking of slippage, one thing could be that if you have loose sand or if you have like these little cavities within the regolith, then there's nothing to, you know, hold it in place while it retracts. So that could be one problem, but it could also be a rock. And if it's a small rock, then it can actually probably break through it or it could possibly like move around it. Right, right, um, right. But if it's a big rock, then that's just kind of a no-go. So that was a, another theory as to what happened. Or like the other theory, and I guess this is not the case, but I've looked at some images, and it seems like it might be, which is that the probe deployed at an angle, and it has to come out of a little housing, which is kind of like a little tube. And so like if, it's, if it starts to bore at more than 15 degrees, then it'll get stuck within that housing. So that could be another issue. But they couldn't tell because they had to – they actually had to move the support structure out of the way in order to mm -hmm. see what had happened. Yeah. And they have done that, and it looks to me like the probe is kind of tilting at an angle. Like it's not being driven straight down. It's kind of going in – I don't know, like – 10 degrees or so off axis, but maybe not. But one thing that it does reveal is that there is actually a little cavity of regolith around the probe. So it, it kind of created a little crater. And that's not good because there's nothing holding it in place. So that's most likely the issue. I mean, there could still be a rock, and the other theory is that it hit that rock, it continued to vibrate, and it kind of, you know, right. created this pit. Kind of like if you're trying to drill a hole in wood, and then you hit like a knot, and you end up making the, you know, the hole yeah. even bigger. that's a really good way to describe it. So the InSight Lander has that little deployment arm, which has a little scoop on it, and I guess the idea is maybe that they can scoop some sand, kind of like, you know, pile some sand around <laughs> it, and then kind of like, gently so pat wonderful. it down. Yeah, that little scoop can apply about nine pounds of force. So hopefully that'll be enough to get it compact enough. I don't know if it will be, but if that's enough to kind of, you know, get the sand around the probe compacted enough, then maybe it can continue to drill down. But it just looked to me like it maybe was penetrating at an angle. I think of the angles just because it's leaning up against the side of the pit. That could also be the case, but it's about 12 inches long. Like that's how long the probe is. And you would think that it would be held in place further mm. down. But then again, it, you know, might have created a larger void there. So, yeah, I mean, it, yeah. I it. To me, it seems really likely that it hit, I mean, just knowing absolutely nothing like I do, it seems super likely like it hit a, it hit a rock it couldn't go through and just kind of sat there and, you know, buzzed itself and disturbed yeah. all the, the regolith around it and kind of leaned over to the side. But yeah, like you said, there's so many different possibilities that we just going to have to play around with it for a bit. I wonder if another potential solution would be 
at first, you know, you pile in the sand, and then do you think maybe it could use the arm, the you know, the little arm to kind of hold it, to like just give it a little push down, just like give it something to push up against. I don't, I don't think you can push on the back of this thing because that's where the science tether, the the ribbon is, and that yeah, seems like a real good way to break some solder joints. If they could do it with just enough finesse and maybe not touch that ribbon, yeah, because um, the ribbon is for. Um, is a passive temperature monitor, so I guess it's just yeah. Like it's got a, a bunch of mon- tem- uh, like thermometers in it. Yeah, it's like an LED strip, but for thermometers. But yeah, right now no plans on doing anything just yet. They're still analyzing this situation, so maybe within a month or so they will have a solution. But it looks like they're just going to have to, you know, pack that soil down and turn it back on and see what happens. All right, three short and sweets this week, although there are just two of us. Uh, but what's our first one, Ben? All right. Uh, first up, the first star hopper test is hopefully going to happen this week. So Elon stopped tweeting about Area 51 for a second and let loose some info about star hopper. The first test will see the craft fly roughly 20 meters up and sideways, and that will hopefully occur the same day that this episode is released on Tuesday. Uh, When Starship Mark 1 flies, which Elon says should happen in a few months, it will hopefully perform a 20 kilometer straight up hop. Here's hoping. Yeah. Next up, Firefly partners up to build a lunar lander. Firefly Aerospace has teamed up with Israeli Aerospace Industries to build a lunar lander for NASA. The two companies will build a version of the Beersheet lander as part of NASA's commercial lunar payload services program. Firefly has signed an IP and engineering support agreement, which gives them access to technology developed for Beersheet. NASA requires all the CLPS landers be built in the United States. In response, Firefly has confirmed that the majority of the lander will be built in the U.S in compliance with those rules so the rest of the parts i don't know but those parts will be fine all right uh third and finally tiangong 2 is ready to deorbit. Uh, so the uh, cmseo the chinese manned space flight engineering office has been dropping hints through social media that it's ready to deorbit the tiangong 2 uh, though no exact time has yet been given, it was stated in April that Tiangong 2 would be deorbited during or after July of this year, as all of its science and engineering objectives have been completed. When the module is ready for deorbiting, it will use its own thrusters to bring itself down, most likely burning up over the South Pacific. We'll have to do another splashdown bingo. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. And what we have this week is another RPG night coming up. Yay. Yeah, so originally when we started doing this, I thought I would like to be able to do it monthly. And it turns out, hey, quarterly (laughs) is the best I can do. And quarterly is still uh, pretty ambitious. But anyway, we have scheduled it for Friday, August 30th at 5 p.m. Pacific time, 8.30 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, A little bit of change here. Instead of playing Lasers and Feelings, we're going to play with a new game system called Rhesus. It's simple. It's not as incredibly simple as Lasers and Feelings, but it's really, really easy and good. There is a link to a post on Patreon that's public, and I link to the rules. And basically, um, you need to come to the game night with a character created. It's really easy. All you have to do is pick three or four cliches, which are like uh, attributes or statistics that you'll have. And uh, they'll kind of define what your character can do and how well your character can do them. Seriously, it 
won't take that long. If you want to get a summary, just show up early and I'll be on there at least a half hour early to answer questions if we need to. Um, but it's going to be really, really, really fun. We have a, a fun story in development right now. I've seen a little bit of it, and it looks fun, but I'm actually not going to do any more peeking. Yeah. Because that's, you know, that's half the fun. Okay, time to move on to upcoming spaceflight events. We got four, I think, so busier than usual. I feel like it's been a while since we had, like, four launches, you know, or, like, two yeah. or more, you know? Yeah. Like, it, it's been kind of slow lately. So first one up is on July 20th. That's a Soyuz going to uh, the ISS, and that is uh, 59S. This is a crewed mission launching the Soyuz MS-13 spacecraft to the International Space Station, and it's going to be up there for about six months. This one will be providing an escape pod for the residents. But actually, I think that they all do that, right? They just kind of yes, put them in rotation because yep. yep. you need to keep them up there for no longer than six months before you start burning away your hydrazine or something. I don't remember what it is that fails first on the I, I have said what fails first and then I'm pretty sure I've been corrected every single time so <laughs> I'm just gonna keep my mouth shut <laughs> I want to say it's the hypergolic so yeah I think that that's what the main issue is yeah like the hypergolic start getting crunchy or something something like that yeah so it's it's worth mentioning who's on board so there's uh, Andrew Morgan uh, he's a NASA astronaut there's Alexander Skortsov He's a Russian uh, astronaut. He's already flown. And then uh, there's also Luca Parmitano of, uh, from ESA of uh, Water in the Helmet fame. Um, mm. So it's really cool. I mean, just, you know, astronauts are, are all awesome. Uh, they're all uh, highly motivated, very intelligent people. But it's cool to see a name that is so familiar to everybody on another launch. It's always cool to see new people go up. And it's also cool to see veterans because you kind of mm -hmm. feel like you know them and you're like, hey, yeah. you know, you know, it's, yeah, it's kind of fun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and then did you uh, did you read the launch time on that one? The launch time for that is 1625 GMT. So that's 1225 Eastern noon. So that's a good time. If you can watch it, then do so. All right. And then next up, we have a Falcon 9 flying CRS-18 to the station, which is pretty cool to have these guys go up so close to each other. And that is carrying the the replacement Ida for the one that was uh, destroyed on CRS-7, right? Yeah, CRS-7. Yep. Yeah, good. I'm glad I remembered a number for once. Um, so that's flying on July 21st at 2335 GMT, which is uh, like 7, 7.30 in the afternoon on the East Coast. And honestly, that's that that one may get delayed because if there's any issues with the Soyuz, they're not going to fly the, the mm -hmm. Dragon right away. So this is going up the next day. So you have these, yeah. you have first the Soyuz, then this. Um, That's not usual. I mean... Well, yeah. SpaceX is bringing up another docking adapter, so that'll make these types of things all the more possible in the future. And then the last one we have up here is July 22nd. That's Hyperbola 1. And so this is a multi-payload mission, and this is being launched by iSpace. I haven't heard of them, but uh, Ben says, you know, you say we've talked about this before. I don't remember iSpace, though. But uh, yeah, so this is a rocket developed by a commercial space company in China, and this is its first attempt at making an orbital launch. So mm -hmm. does that mean that it shouldn't be called Hyperbola anymore? <laughs> I don't know. Well, uh, Hyperbola... Uh, hyperbolic orbit would be an escape orbit so i guess it never was hyperbolic in the first place right. it was yeah it was only ever parabolic yeah <laughs> um this has several small payloads including c uh, cas-7b or cas-7b which is uh an amateur radio satellite so i guess we're just putting up small payloads for now because i'm assuming it's a relatively small launch vehicle although again i don't know much about it so there's no exact launch time given just uh, july 22nd so 
at some point during that day, there'll be the launch of Hyperbola 1. Yeah, pretty good. All right, so those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right, time to bring the show to a close and deorbit. We would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 p.m. Eastern Time. Thank you to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show too, please leave us a review wherever you listen. And we would like to thank Scooby TGI and Ali Anthor for leaving us very nice reviews on iTunes. And you can also visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, please visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you.